All right, everybody, how you doing tonight? Excellent, from the few that said good. There it is. There I am. Okay. Um, all right, so we are continuing our study on, on Calvinism tonight, and we're going to be diving into the acronym, starting off with the letter T this evening. Uh, but as we start to lay the groundwork, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. If you didn't notice from last week, I skipped a ton of stuff. So if you did some extra studying this past week going over some of those verses, there's a few that I just really want to point out um, each week, just a little bit, talking about the Word of God being our final authority. And that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to take a look at the doctrines of uh, Reformed theology and Calvinism, um, and we're going to compare it to what the Word of God actually says, especially going into the passages that they hold to that teach the things that they say that it teaches. And what we're going to find is that it actually teaches the opposite. So tonight, we begin the endeavor of diving into these details. So over the past three weeks, we've been establishing this foundational framework of having a proper perspective because we need to be Bible believers, and that is not popular today among Christianity, and that's strange to me. It's very weird. Um, the Word of God is, is super important, and Christians just really devalue it at every turn, and it really is an attack of the enemy for sure, 100%. Sound doctrine is always under fire from the enemy from multiple fronts. And one of the most dangerous ways that it's assaulted is by rewriting and redefining the term sound doctrine according to the philosophy and vain deceit and indoctrinating it into Christianity. That's really what Calvinism does. And we have to be faithful. We spent some time uh, several weeks ago talking about our beloved brothers and sisters that have gone before us that have believed the Bible. And when we do that, you better believe you're going to come under fire. Because the most dangerous people in the world are just common people, you and I, that are willing to just believe what God says. And the enemy wants to take the Bible out of our hands. So we need to learn how to hold the line on sound doctrine. And we've got to learn how to earnestly contend for the faith, because it's difficult sometimes. And a lot of us, we're not comfortable with really rocking the boat sometimes. But we need to take a stand, and we need to know how to do that. And we're going to spend a week talking about what that means to earnestly contend for the faith. But no matter what may come, we have to hold the line. And it's more than just holding the line. I've been thinking about this over the past week especially, that it's more than just holding the line for the next generation. Holding the line, to hold the line properly on sound doctrine means that it must become yours. Like it has to be yours. You know when Paul said, according to my gospel? Well, that was the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but it meant so much to him that he called it my gospel, and that is kept preserved in our Bible for that reason. These things need to become ours in order for us to hold the line properly, because that's what's happened over time. Christian churches, Christianity, but even Bible teaching churches that have been sound no longer exist today because it has become watered down, because people are not being discipled and trained properly to hold the line, and to make it theirs. And we want to make sure that we're doing our part, that that doesn't fail on our part. I, I want the next generation, I want my kids to have a church that they can go to that preaches and teaches the Word of God. I want my grandkids to have that. And I want their kids to have that. I, I, want, I want this to be able to be something until the Lord comes, that there is a light that doesn't have to be removed in this area. But unfortunately, those candlesticks are removed when we don't hold the line properly. So in Matthew 4, and the reason why we're doing this this way is, is the Word of God is our final authority. And one of the things that I didn't get time to talk about last week is that 
God sees his written word so important and he elevates it on such a high level that in Matthew chapter 4, you have the temptation where Jesus is out in the desert and he's tested for 40 days. And it says in verse 3, and when the tempter came to him, he said, if thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he, Jesus, answered and said, it is written. This is amazing to me. Three times we see here recorded in Scripture where the devil comes to tempt our Lord, and he is the embodiment. He is God. He is God come in the flesh. Everything he says is the Word of God. (laughs) That's incredible to me. And yet, he could have used his own words, his own thoughts, his own... What did he use? Scripture. He used the written Word of God. Now, if that doesn't tell you how important the written Word of God is, there's nothing else that's going to convince you. If Jesus, God in the flesh, used written scripture to combat the devil, then you better believe that it must be our final authority in all matters. So it's super important that we remember that, and we're going to do little nuggets like that each week just to remind us. So with that said, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive into our study. Father, there's so many things that I want to say, and there's a lot of information that's on the sheet, and I know in my heart and in my mind Uh, this lesson could go in in many different directions. So I just ask God that you would guide and direct us tonight. Uh, We really need you. We can try to to follow the path of our own wisdom and understanding, um, but frankly, God, that always gets us in trouble. We need you to guide and direct us. And so I pray that we would rely upon your words. We would magnify your word above your name as you do, and we'd let it drive the whole conversation. And so, Father, equip us enlighten us, help us, encourage us, and I pray that we'd be able to leave here different people as a result of hearing your word tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we're going to be diving into total depravity, and I tell you, I got to be in the right mindset to study some of this stuff, Um, but total depravity is something where it's like a semi-truth, and and you'll see when we go through this. I want to give you in Calvinist's own words what they say total depravity is, And I want to go to the passages of Scripture that they say teach these things. And I want to show you that they're taking it completely and totally out of context. And if we have time, which I'm hoping that we do, I want to show you what the Bible actually says when it comes to the issue of total depravity or depravity and depravity in general. So the first thing that we have to do is that we have to define total depravity. Now, this very first point under here is from the Westminster Confession of Faith, and this is very similar to the creeds that have been put together over the years. It is an attempt, and really a poor attempt, of man taking biblical concepts outside of the Bible and rewriting it according to their own heart's desire. And this is where we get in trouble, because when you read certain things like this, like even in the creeds, it is biblical truth. There are things in there that are solid that we say, yes, I agree with that. But here's my question. Why do we need it? If the Bible says it, why do we need to take it outside of the Bible and rewrite it? Because the Word of God is inspired by God himself, and he says it far better than what any man could put together. And this is where things start to get out of hand when it comes to following our own wisdom and our own reasoning. So this Westminster Confession of Faith, I have it on your study sheet, I've got it up on the screen as well. Total depravity means that man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good, 
and dead to sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereto, thereunto. Now, when you look at this, there are certain things that are absolutely true in here because there, there's some false arguments that are made. And this is where I really have a hard time because a Calvinist will say, you have no ability to save yourself, to which we would say, absolutely. But then if we don't take their position, they label us Arminians and we are not Arminians. Arminians hold to the doctrine that you can lose your salvation because you're able to do something in order to earn merit or favor with God. And so therefore you've attained salvation by your own accord. So then you can lose it. Churches that commonly believe this would be like the Nazarene church. Church of Christ would believe this. Um, you know, River Tree is another one that would believe something like this. They believe these sorts of doctrines. Now they may not be clear on it and they might tiptoe around it because they don't want to offend people, but that's what they really believe. And so these things are very important because I remember back when I was in college, and I've shared this story before, when I was in systematic theology, the doctrine of salvation was always presented, you are either a Calvinist or you are an Arminian. And I had to read through all the nonsense, read through all the lectures and read all the books, and I'm like, no, <laughs> neither one. Both are wrong. I believe what the Bible says. And so then I had to do some digging and then try to figure out how to give my answer. So when you read something like this, there are nuggets of truth to it, but what they're not telling you is the problem. And we're going to get to it because we actually find as we kind of go through this, reading through other uh, preachers and pastors that are Calvinists, that are really headline mainstream Calvinists that everyone at least has heard of, you'll find that they say a lot of things, but there are very few that actually get down to the nitty-gritty. So this next point here, and it is by John Piper, his, his organization, Desiring God, and it says, a corrupt nature inherent in humanity ever since the sin of Adam, and there is no human faculty left untouched by sin, to which we would say, absolutely. That makes complete sense, and that's the danger. The next point here is from Grace to You by John MacArthur. And he says, sinners have no ability to do, any, to do spiritual work or spiritual good or work for their own salvation from sin. They are so completely disinclined to love righteousness, so thoroughly dead to sin, that they are not able to save themselves or even to fit themselves for God's salvation. Unbelieving humanity has no capacity to desire, understand, believe, or apply spiritual truth, to which then he applies 1 Corinthians 2.14. And in his version it says, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Unrepentant man, unrepentant man is utterly incapacitated by his innate sin nature. Even the good things he does are tainted by sinful motivations and self-interest, and nothing about him merits God's favor, grace, or attention. He is totally depraved. Now, there's a few things in there that he begins to reveal what they're really saying, but he backs away from it. And we would agree with probably 90% of what's here. When it comes to the sin nature, it is very deceitful and wicked. And even the things that we call good can be tainted by sin. If not, most times it's tainted by sin. So we would agree with that. But then we get to R.C. Sproul. And R.C. Sproul is a little bit more of an honest Calvinist. Because he actually puts it out there, and he says what other Calvinists dance around. And he says this, and this one's very, very important. He says, if a person really embraces the doctrine of total depravity, the other four points in this five-point system more or less fall in line. So that means that if the doctrine of total depravity is not biblical, all the rest is hogwash. 
So it's very important because it all goes together. And you're going to see that because there's going to be some overlap from week to week showing you the differences about what the Bible says and what a Calvinist will say. He goes on to say this, and this should hopefully ring some bells from past weeks when we talked about church history. And by the way, speaking of past weeks, we have been putting these recordings up. We have a podcast now. I wanted to make mention of that. It's up on Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well. So if you search for our church, you'll be able to find it. So I just wanted to make sure that you guys knew about that. So he says this, R.C. Sproul says this, the doctrine of total depravity describes and defines a particular view of original sin that has its roots in the teaching of St. Augustine. Augustine was the patron saint of the monastery where Martin Luther was reared in the faith and where he taught at Wittenberg. Luther was an Augustinian monk. Augustine was also the most revered mentor of John Calvin. So the thinking of Augustine had an enormous influence in shaping the doctrine of the Protestant Reformation. So alarm bells should be going off automatically, automatically. Augustine said that the fall was so profound and the power of sin so strong in the human heart that only God by his grace and by his grace alone can change the disposition of the human soul to bring that person to faith. At issue here is whether fallen man has the intact, it has intact the ability, the moral power to incline himself to or to embrace in his own strength the offers of help and assistance that come to us from God? Or is it necessary for God to do the initial work of recreation in the soul before the fallen person has the moral power to say yes to the gospel? Now, those people do come to Christ and they do choose Christ. They come willingly and cheerfully, but not until God does his work of sovereign grace in bringing that person from spiritual death to spiritual life. That is not the gospel. That is not what the gospel says. So, again, Taking all this philosophical jargon, let's boil it all down. What does this all mean? And this is being 100% honest to these men, what they've written and what they say they believe. The Calvinist Reformed theologian declares that humanity is so thoroughly corrupt by the sin nature and their personal sin that they are totally incapable of responding in a positive manner to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ without God regenerating their heart first. That is what they are saying. That is what they declare. That is what they believe. That's what the Bible teaches. That if you share the gospel, you can share the gospel, but until God regenerates their heart first, they will not receive the gospel. If God regenerates their heart, then they can respond in a positive manner. Until then, it's not possible. That's what they say. Now, there are some huge huge problems with that at first. I mean, just hearing that alone should cause certain things to go off in your head. And so we're going to work through some of their passages, but I want you to see in the words of John Piper and Rick Warren themselves, it's a short two-minute video, I want you to see this video, and I want you to see what they say, and you'll see the exact same line of thinking before we get into their alleged scripture support. Now, implication for total depravity, All right. or whatever that is, yeah. depravity, yeah. Um, 
would it would I be right to infer from yeah. what you've said about the new birth that sure. you believe that our inability to awaken ourselves yeah. to faith and to begin this glorious purpose-driven life, yeah. it, it, we can't. We can't do it without God's sovereign. I, I just go back to Scripture, and that not of yourselves. Yeah. Rest my case. Yeah. And that not of yourselves. Yeah. And that meaning faith. Uh, even the faith. Even the faith. Even the faith. Okay. And that not of yourselves. So total depravity uh, in that yes. way of saying it would mean totally unable to get my salvation started. Exactly. Okay. And I, I think that's... I, I totally believe that. It, some people take total yeah. to mean you do as many bad things as you could do, and clearly you could do more bad things as an unbeliever than you do do, but it, that, that's not the point. The you point know, is I'm totally unable. Again, I don't use total depravity as much as I like to say total inability. Yeah, that, that's the, even more dev- devastating. To I think. me, to me uh, it, it means, well, I used this as an illustration last week. We had Easter, and we had uh, one of the miners who was here from uh, the Chilean mine. Yeah. Okay, okay. 33 men trapped for 69 days, 2,000 feet below the ground. Okay? Now, one of them was a Christian, and uh, over the next 69 days, 22 of those guys came to Christ. He came and shared his story. Uh, but the illustration that I used was, now the, uh, they, were, uh, they were unable to pay for their own salvation. Mm-hmm. Okay, they, for all intents purposes, are dead and don't even know it. Mm-hmm. They're dead and don't know it. Mm-hmm. They're trapped. They're doomed. There's no way getting out. They can't say, "Well, really, I don't need the government because I've got a spoon, <laughs> and I'm going to dig my way out of this hole." It isn't going to happen. Now, on the other hand, coming this direction, they're coming down to save them, and the important thing that they need to understand is no way would they ever be able to repay or afford it. This salvation, this rescue, is going to take tens of millions of dollars, and in 10 lifetimes, they could never afford or pay for their freedom, their salvation, their liberation, their redemption, their rescue, whatever synonym. Do you see the subtlety? I mean, it's right there. Because here's the side of even just using that illustration alone, which there's many words that I, that I want to say, but just using that illustration alone, let's say they get all the way down to those men. Those men in that mind still have a choice. Do they walk out with them or stay put? And they don't see even that. So this is very, very dangerous because on the one hand, it sounds smart, it sounds intellectual. It sounds like, oh, wow. And then you start to understand some of these theological principles and it begins to appeal to your flesh and so on and so on and so on. So now let's talk about their alleged scripture support because they are masters at taking passages of scripture and saying things that are not true. Let's go to Jeremiah 17.9. Jeremiah 17.9. I had worked through all the other passages and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't forget this one. This one's like the biggie. Jeremiah 17.9. This was one that when I was a teenager in my youth ministry that my youth pastors used with me all the time. All the time. Jeremiah 17, 9. 
The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Okay, one thing I want to start off with. One of the rules of Bible study is that you never base a doctrine on a question. Never. You never base a doctrine on a question. Now, when you look at that, they would say, see, the heart is so deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, you can't even know what's in your own heart. And if you can't even know what's in your own heart, how can you respond positively towards the gospel? That's what they would say. But then next, look at the next verse. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. This verse, you have to read Calvinistic doctrine into it. What this teaches me, not on a Calvinist front, is that when it comes to my free will, my obedience or disobedience is totally dependent upon my, my heart. When I think about my heart, yes, my heart is deceitful. I cannot trust my own heart. Proverbs talks about that very clearly. He that trusteth in his own heart is a fool. So I must go to God and say, God, and this is what David did, God, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. They don't see it that way. The whole context of this verse is that God is dealing with the nation of Israel. They can either choose to trust in man, which is what it says in verse 5 and 6. Look at that one. It says, verse 5 of the same chapter in this context, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert, and shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land, and not inhabited. God says, listen, nation of Israel, if you choose to trust in man, if you choose to trust in your own wisdom, in your own reasoning, this is what's going to happen to you. It will not go well. Or they can trust in God. Look at verse 7 and 8. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters and that spreadeth out her roots by the river and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaves shall be green and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. I, the Lord, search the heart. I tried the reins even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. When you see it in context, God is saying, Israel, you got two choices. Not Christian, by the way. Devotionally, sure. But God is speaking to the nation of Israel. And he is saying, nation of Israel, you can trust in man and it will not go well. Or you can trust in me and your heart is evil and deceitful and wicked above all things. And I'm the one that tries the heart. And I give to every man according to the fruit of his doings. This is very simple, very simple. But they are masters at taking a, just one verse like this and saying, see, see, you can't. You can't respond. That's what they do. They take it out of context, they rest the scripture, and then make it all philosophical and intellectual. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2. This is one that John MacArthur used, or his organization used, but he also uses this one as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, right out of the gate, you should know the context of Corinth. Corinth is a church that is steeped in philosophy and vain deceit, steeped in it. They are probably one of the best examples of the Laodicean church. First and Second Corinthians is a perfect book for us today 
because they trusted in their own in their own selves, their own wisdom, and Paul came in to tell them otherwise. Now, they abuse chapter 2 and verse 14, which says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And they stop. And they say, See, the Scriptures teach that you in your natural state do not and cannot understand the things of God. In fact, you can't understand them so much that they are foolishness to you. They must be spiritually discerned. And you can't spiritually discern it unless you have been enlightened by the Spirit of God and God has, has made you alive by the Holy Spirit and have been able to be enlightened to understand it. That's what they, that would, that's what they would say. Now here, if you look at the context, this is very, very clear. In 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, Paul is drawing a distinction between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And he says very clearly in chapter 1 that the wisdom of the world is a product of natural man and they cannot find God in their wisdom. Look at verse 21 of chapter 1. In fact, verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign. And the Greeks, those are the Gentiles, they seek after wisdom, that natural man wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And he goes on. And this is very, very clear, just based on this whole context, that he is drawing this distinction. And he carries this over into chapter 2. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. That means that when Paul stepped into Corinth, he knew that they were so steeped in philosophical jargon that he stood far away from it. He didn't even engage in conversations like what we just heard. He said, no, God became a man. And he died for your sins. And if you're willing to trust in him and him alone, you will receive salvation. And they were wanting to f- philosophize it, if that's even a term. I feel like I just said falafel. <laughs> falafel it. That's what he wanted to do. <laughs> that's what they wanted to do. That's what, when he went up on Mars Hills, we want to hear you again in this matter. And he didn't go back. But there were some that heard and they believed. And so that's what's going on here. This natural man cannot find God in their own wisdom. And this is very easy to understand because what he says here, just a little bit farther down the line in, in chapter 2, he says in, uh, in verse 4, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And this is so important because Calvinists will use the Bible to create wisdom of men, and they want your faith to stand in their wisdom. You can hear it. I mean, it's dripping off of them. Rather than just believing what the Bible says. 
They don't want to do it. In fact, in fact, I will go as far as to say that a Calvinist will say that it is beneath them to believe the pages of the Bible. Now, they will not say that, but their life proves it because the Bible is not enough for their doctrine. It's not enough. Now, they will use it when it's necessary or when it's convenient, but it is not enough for their doctrine. So what Paul is teaching here is that you and I, as, as Gentiles, we must come to the end of the wisdom of this world, and we must find it vanity, and we must humble ourselves to the truth of God's word, and then you'll be able to see and hear the truth of God from the Spirit of God. Because that's what chapter 2 teaches. You can't understand the things of God without the Spirit of God. You need the Spirit of God. I mean, how many times have you heard people say, oh yeah, I'm an atheist and I've read the Bible? Okay, what does that prove? I mean, anybody can read anything, but you need the Spirit of God, the author of that book, to be inside of you. And this is how God works. You believe and then he will enlighten you. But you're coming into this already in, as an intellectual with the wisdom of this world and you won't be able to find God. You're not gonna be able to find him. So this verse actually teaches the exact opposite, the exact opposite. The next one that they like to use is John chapter 6. Now this one can be a doozy, but this one will be fun. John chapter 6. And again, we're just going to take it in its immediate context, and you'll be able to see how it just blows Calvinism out of the water. John chapter 6. Verse 63 through 65 is where they like to hang out. Verse 63, it is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. Now, do you see the Calvinistic doctrine in there? Yes. See, this is the hard part for me, and I'm just going to be honest with you, and I get frustrated. I learn from my youth pastors all of these passages and all their lines of thinking, so when I read these scriptures, I tend to read it first as a Calvinist. And I have to stop myself, and I have to go back, and I got to look at the context and say, hold on, hold on, hold on, because there's always like this little in my, in my gut. <laughs> there is, and I'm like, ooh, that does kind of sound like it. And I'm like, hold on, stop. I believe the Bible. Go back to the context. What is going on here? In this particular chapter, Jesus feeds the multitude. So he takes the five loaves and the two fish, and he begins feeding the multitude. And this is the fourth miracle that God records where it proves that Jesus is God. And as he takes those five barley loaves and two fish and he feeds them, he's showing that he can do some amazing stuff. And he connects himself to manna as a type of himself. So these guys start debating with him, and he says, what are you talking about? My father gave you the manna in the desert, and they're dead. I am the true manna that came down from heaven. This is exactly what he says here. And so what's interesting about manna is, and we don't have time to study this out. You can look at it later. But if you want to look at these references, you've got Exodus 16, verses 12 through 36. Exodus 16, 12 through 36 and Numbers 11, 4 through 9. So Exodus 16, 12 through 36, and Numbers 11, 4 through 9. When you go back, and immediately as Jesus connects himself to manna, it gets real interesting. 
So what did God do back in the wilderness? They were hungry, and they wanted food, and they were murmuring against God. So God gave them quail, and he gave them manna. And you find out this manna that showed up because the dew on the ground, the dew would dry up, and there would be this little tiny seed, and he called it like a coriander seed, and it was white. And he told them, go and collect it. Go out, collect that manna, as much as you'll eat, and then take it back, and don't collect more, don't collect less, but just collect however much you need. And then on the day before the Sabbath, I'll give you twice as much. So go out and collect twice as much because on the Sabbath day, there's not going to be any manna. And so there were people that did not obey God at all. They went out and they took so much and they're like, oh, we didn't use all of our manna. And the next day it bred worms and it stank. It was done. It was just corrupt. And then there are those that went out on the day before the Sabbath and they didn't collect enough. And they went out on the Sabbath day and God's like, what are you doing? You're not obeying me. So this tells you something just in this illustration. The Israelites had a free will choice. God provided the manna. He gave it. But they had to get off their duff, walk out of the tent, go and collect it. And not only did they have to collect it, but then they'd have to bring it in and they'd have to take it and to crush it in mortars and in mills and then bake it in order for it to mean something. And this is such a beautiful picture, such a beautiful picture of just even the written word of God. If you want to be fed by God, God has given you a book, but you must go and collect it. And then you have to break it down and process it and apply it to your life in order for it to nourish you. It's so beautiful. I love it. But the amazing thing here is Jesus says, I am that manna. God gave me to you as the bread of life. If you want it, come and get it. That's what he's saying here. That's exactly what he's saying here. So take a look at what he says in verse 28. Verse 28 of, of John chapter 6. Then said they unto him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he, God, hath sent. If you want to do the work of God, believe on me. I was sent from God to give you life. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then say they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye have seen, also have seen me, and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will, which he hath sent me. That of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but I should raise it up the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So when you see it in context, and you see what he's, going, what he's saying here, it's very, very clear that it makes perfect sense sense. Because now look at verse 44 before going back to those verses that they totally rest and twist. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him and I'll raise him up at the last day. Okay, well let's, let's think about this for a second. 
Is God drawing these people at this moment? Yes. Because who is Jesus? He is the bread of life. He is that manna. God gave Jesus the manna, the bread of life, and he's like, listen, if you're hungry, come and get it. Come and get it. I'm drawing you with my words to me so you may have life. That's exactly what God is saying here. This is exactly what he's saying. And so now this makes perfect sense with what he says over in verse 65. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. Yes! This is not Calvinistic doctrine. Read it in the context. God gave the world, specifically the nation of Israel, Jesus as manna. He gave it. So according to this, you can't come unto me unless the Father has given it. Well, did he give Jesus to them? 100%. Well, then the case is settled. It's over. So what you need to do is you just need to take a look at these verses that they are so good at making you sound dumb. And just look at the scriptures and look at it in context and you'll find out that they're actually the ones that are dumb. They do. They take what God has said and they twist it just ever so slightly in order for it to fit their doctrine when that is not what Jesus is teaching. That is not what Jesus is teaching. In this passage, the Father is drawing them and giving Jesus to them for eternal life. And this later would come in to be the case when he said, and, and I love this verse, in John 12, 32, Jesus says, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. So he will do that. So again, completely out of context, and they rest it, and they take it for granted. Now let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. This one's a tough one. They like to use and abuse this one. But again, take it in context, and you actually find that it's very simple to understand. Very, very simple to understand. And we're going to be talking about Ephesians as well in the future because they love to use the book of Ephesians in order to support their doctrine. Ephesians 2, verse 1 and 2. Verse 1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. So they would say, See, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And what can a dead man do? Can a dead man respond? Of course not. So therefore, God had to make you alive in order for you to respond. Okay. Hold on a second. Take it in context. What is he talking about here? What is the purpose of the book of Ephesians? The context of Ephesians is not individual salvation. It isn't. It is not at all. Does it talk about it? Yes, it does. But the context of the book and the purpose of the book is not about individual salvation. It is the revealing of the mystery of the church. That is the purpose of the book of Ephesians. And once you get that down, it helps with everything else that's going on in the context. Through this mystery of the church, Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, can know the wealth that they have in Christ and how it should impact how they walk on a daily basis. That's the whole goal of the book of Ephesians. God teaches in this book that he has chosen a group of people before the foundation of the world to be holy and without blame in love. 
he has chosen a group. Now, look at what it says, because again, they like to use this uh, in their corner, and it does not say what they say it says. Chapter 1, verse 4. We'll back it up to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of, of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Now they would say, see, God chose you before the foundation of the world to receive salvation. That's what they would say. But what does it say? According as he hath chosen us, not you individually, us, a group of people. Now, he's speaking to the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus, are they born again? Yes, he's speaking to believers. So he's speaking to a group of people that have already trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. So when he says that he has chosen us in him, this has nothing to do with you and your individual salvation. He's saying you have made a decision to be born again, to trust Christ as your Savior. And because of that decision, he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we, again plural, should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated us, which by the way, this word is very simple to understand. It just means determined beforehand. That's all it means. So God had determined beforehand. He has determined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glory, of his grace. And we have that redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ according to verse seven. That's all it's saying. That's all. Nowhere does it say anywhere in there that he has chosen you to be born again in him. He does not say that. He has chosen us in him. That's what it says. In fact, he goes on in, in chapter one, some of my favorite verses, which I believe totally wrecks Calvinism, in verse 13. Because it says in verse 12 that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. So it tells you right now, this is the process that unfolded in your life when you trusted Christ as your savior. Now, verse 13, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. The Calvinists will argue with this verse, but this verse teaches very clearly, step by step, you hear the word of truth. The word of truth must be spoken, must be preached, must be taught to you. And when you hear it, then you have a choice to make. Are you going to believe it? When you believe it, God then seals you with the Holy Spirit of promise in that order. But the Calvinists will say, as we just read, that's not possible because you're dead in your trespasses and sins. It's not possible you can't respond positively towards the gospel. You must be regenerated first. But that's not what verse 13 says. If that was true, then God would say this. He would say, in whom ye also trusted, after I regenerated you with the Holy Spirit of promise, when ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. But that's not what the Bible says. 
This is like a workout. It's not what the Bible says. And so then we have a choice to make. Are we going to believe what the Bible says or are we going to believe men that sound smarter? That's really what this comes down to because these men sound smart, but they are fools. They are fools. And that's why 1 Corinthians says what it says, that God hath made foolish the wisdom of this world. This is how. This is one of the great examples how he has done that. So God teaches that he, yes, did he predestine? Yes, absolutely. Did he choose? Absolutely. He chose that there would be a group of people that when they heard the word of truth, they would receive it, he would seal them with his Holy Spirit, and they would become born again. That's what it says. That's exactly what the Bible says. And they always take these things completely and totally, totally out of context. Totally out of context. Okay. So now, after going through that, I've given you enough that you can kind of work through that on your own as well. And if you have any questions, make sure to to let me know. I'd be happy to answer them. So let's get down to actual scripture truth. What does the Bible say? Now, we don't have time to go through all of these, so I'm only going to go through a few. But turn with me to Romans, Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1. I'll go through each of the points in detail, but I'm only going to be able to probably hit just a couple of the references with the time that we have left. So what does the Bible say? So the Bible says that salvation through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is available to everyone that believeth. To everyone that believeth. Romans 1.16, I love this verse. It's very clear. For I am not ashamed of the power of, of, or not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now the Calvinists would read into that and say, well, of course, I believe that too, and everyone that believes is one that has been chosen by God. That's what they would say, but that's not what the Bible actually says. It says, and this is, this is why I love the scripture so much, especially our King James Bible, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. I know that everyone in the Greek means everyone because it says everyone. It's really clear. I can trust every single word in my Bible. If you make that choice to believe and it is available to everyone, then you can receive salvation. Because Romans ten seventeen says, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith is what saves you, and so you hear the word of God, and you trust in it, and you can receive salvation. He says this also in Acts chapter 10. I got this one up on the screen. To him, talking about Jesus, give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. What does whosoever mean? Whosoever. Whosoever. Now, they would say, no, that's not what it says. Whosoever believeth, well, who can believe? Well, those that have been regenerated first. And then that's what they do. These are the mind games that they play. Whosoever. Romans 10, 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever. Salvation through the gospel is available to everyone that believeth. Next, the Bible teaches that God's goodness is extended to all to lead them to repentance through creation, conscience, and the written word of God. When you have some time, go through Romans 1, 2, and 3. It is a beauty. 
I love how God lays this out. It is a book that gives you great theology. And he begins this book by telling you that he has made it available to everybody. Everyone knows who God is. Everyone. They say they don't believe in him. Okay, if you don't believe in him, then why do you make us think about him? If he doesn't exist, then why are you making such a big deal about it? Everyone knows that he is real and that he exists. When you look out into creation, you know he exists. You know. I remember some of my best memories was when I was in Canada as a kid. And I loved going up to the very top of the hill where we would stay. And we would lay for hours just staring at the stars. Loved it. Every time, it always put me in awe. There are certain moments I can look back on where I would see God's creation and I'm like, this is incredible. You go on missions trips or go on other trips and you take pictures and you look at your pictures and it's like, these are junk. This is, this is not an accurate representation of what I beheld with my eyes. That's exactly who God is. God makes himself known by his creation. And if you reject that, well, then you're going to become a fool. And that's exactly what chapter one teaches. Chapter two teaches that God has revealed himself through your conscience. Your conscience is an amazing thing, an amazing thing. You don't need the Bible to know that God exists. When you do something that goes against God's standard and against God's law, your conscience will scream at you. I remember the first time that I sinned as a kid, and I shared this story all the time with the youth, and I share it because it's just my testimony. I remember, I forgot how old I was. I don't know, Mom, if you remember how old I was. You can embarrass me if you want. I'll embarrass myself anyway. But I remember she told me, all right, Stephen, it's time for your bath. I said, okay. So I went back to my room, and normally I just could get completely undressed and walk buck naked down the hallway. And I remember that this time, I wanted to take my Hot Wheels with me. And she's like, and I said, Mom, can I take my Hot Wheels? She said, no, I don't want you to take your Hot Wheels. And I said, okay. So I get back to my room, take all my clothes off, except for my shirt, because I wanted to take those Hot Wheels anyway. I know what my mom said, but I wanted to take those Hot Wheels anyway. So I took those Hot Wheels, and I tucked them in my shirt, and then I slowly walked down the hall, and I looked both ways, didn't see mom, so I started walking faster. And then she comes out of her room, and she said, hey, I thought I told you to get undressed for your bath. What's that in your shirt? And immediately I went, duh, I just started bawling. <laughs> I just, and I knew, like I knew, like there's a vivid memory that I have in my mind. That was the first time that I knew that I had sinned against my mom and dad, and I did something. My conscience was screaming at me, don't take those Hot Wheels. That's what my conscience was telling me. If you do this, you're disobeying your mom. You are vi you're violating what your, what your parents told you. You're going you're, you're gonna to get in trouble. And I did it anyway. And I knew it. And I felt like I was so corrupt when I made that decision. And then I got caught. My conscience was screaming at me because I was violating the law of God. As a little kid, I knew. I knew very clearly. And then also he has revealed himself through the written word of God. Romans 2, 17 through chapter 3, verse 2 talks about that. And God has given us his word so that we know his heart towards us and how to actually be redeemed. So God's goodness is extended to all to lead them to repentance. That's what Romans 2, 4 says. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. It draws all men unto repentance because he's witnessed himself through creation, our conscience, and of course the written word of God. The Bible also teaches that mankind bears the burden of responsibility to respond to God. This is, this is big. Mankind bears the burden of responsibility to respond to God. God is good to communicate to the world, and it is now on them to respond. 
You see this all over the scripture. He did this with the nation of Israel like crazy. In Deuteronomy 8.20, he says, As the nations which the Lord destroyeth before your face, so shall ye perish, because ye would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God. You're not going to be obedient? Well, then there's consequences. Isaiah 30, verse 15, For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest shall ye be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength, and ye would not. Jeremiah 29, 19, Because they have not hearkened to my words, saith the Lord, which I send unto them by my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them. But ye would not hear, saith the Lord. Does that sound like total depravity? Why would God send prophets? Why would he speak if they were not able to respond? This is why, I, I just remember clearly, whenever my, my youth pastors were sharing this stuff with me and my singles pastors were sharing this stuff with me, I'm just like, no. Like, this makes absolute no sense to me whatsoever. And, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it because I wasn't, as studied up on it as them, and they had gone to school and gotten their masters and all this stuff, and I'm like, there's something not right about this. And I know that it was the Holy Spirit of God saying, that's wrong. That's not what my word says. And I couldn't articulate that as a 14, 15, 16-year-old kid, 17-year-old kid, but I knew something was wrong. And this one is like one of the many nails in the coffin. Matthew 23, 37. Jesus himself, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often I would have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. I gave you the opportunity. I want this to happen. It is in my heart. I I want you to be mine, but you won't. That's the heart of God. And the thing that upsets me so much about this stuff is that they claim that their doctrine magnifies God above all else. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, you're taking God off of his throne and reducing him to some sort of a dictator. Like, that is not my God. That is not the God of the Bible. And it makes me so mad. Because he's not worthy to be treated like that. And yet they think that they're doing God a service. It's not right. It's absolutely not right. John 3 is another one that's just, it's so good. And you can read that one on your own. John 3, 14 through 21, it's so good. But then Jesus also says this in John chapter 5 and verse 40. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. These are so simple you'd have to be educated to miss it. Here's another dinger. The Bible teaches that the enemy of God actively works to hide the gospel and blind the minds of them which believe not. Look at 2 Corinthians 4. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Okay. If man is so totally depraved that they are unable to respond positively towards the gospel without God's supernatural intervening into their life, 
why does the God of this world have to blind their minds? This is where I just, it, it's, it's like, it makes no sense to me, like at all, at, at all. Why would God play those kind of games? Because the whole goal of this verse is it says that the enemy blinds their minds to those that specifically, they're, they're unbelievers, lest the light of the glorious gospel, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And if you read it in its context, and that they would be born again, that they would actually be saved. That's what he's doing. And so again, the Calvinist just takes it completely and totally out of context. And then lastly, under this point, through, though, uh, through Christ, God made room and humbles himself to extend his hand of mercy to sinners. In Psalm 133, verse 5 through 6, it says this about God. Who is like the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high, who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? God is so holy that it takes him to humble himself to just behold the things that are happening. And so I agree on the side of the Calvinists where they say, well, God is so holy that he can't even be, absolutely. So how is it possible that God can even, can even walk among us? Have you ever thought about that? I think about stuff like that all the time. Why is it possible that even God could even be with us? Like, why would he even, why would he even care about me? Why would he even be interested in who I am? Who, who am I to offer to him? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and then we're going to end here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, one of the things that we're going to talk about in future weeks is that God knows everything that's going to occur. He sees all. This is common sense because God has created time. And God stands outside of time just because of who he is. You know, when I think about my kids and if they're making something out of Play-Doh or if I'm drawing a picture or if one of my kids are drawing a picture or they're doing something, they stand outside of it because they created it. They're not in it. They can be seen by their work. They can, there's evidence that, you know, this kid versus that kid did it based on their age and their proficiency and all that. But God in the same manner stands outside of time because he created it. And as the creator of time, he knows everything that's going to happen from beginning to end. But that does not mean that God dictates everything that's going to occur. That does not mean that. But the Calvinist has a very hard time with that actually being compatible with their doctrine. They would say that God is so holy that he must determine every little thing that unfolds. And I mean, they call it the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God to them is like meep compared to what it actually is according to the scriptures. Because tell me which is greater and which magnifies God more dictating every little thing that occurs or allowing free will to run and despite the free will decisions of every human being for all of human history that God still accomplishes his plan as he sees fit. I'm telling you, that's the God of the Bible and he is far superior than the God of the Calvinist. Far superior. But when God through Christ, he made room and he humbles himself to extend his hand of mercy. This is a passage that is very near and dear to my heart. Look over in verse 14. 14. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, which, again, side note, since we're dealing with Calvinists, 
One died for all. He died for all. He died for all. The Bible says that very clearly. That they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now we henceforth know we, know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, verse 19 is, is the key. To wit, so he's going to explain. What does that mean? To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you, and Christ said, be reconciled to God. Verse 19 is so critical. What it says here, and I'll just break it down. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. So this means that when God was on the cross, when Jesus was on the cross, that he was paying for the price of the sin of all mankind. And God was in that, in that event. And through his death for sin, for the atonement for sin, he now has able to make room to really suspend or hold back his wrath from being just poured out on all humanity. God deserves to just unleash on us because of our sin. His holiness is so magnificent that we should not even, not, not even, it's not even close when it comes to, we don't, we don't need to stand in his presence. We can't stand in his presence. We are so tainted by sin and our sin nature that for us to even know God is, is unfathomable. So how is it that God can actually deal with us? How is it that he can communicate? It's through Jesus Christ. Because of what Christ did on the cross, God was able to make room to hold back his wrath in order to deal with us. And then it says, because of that, because he was not imputing their trespasses unto them, he wasn't putting it upon them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. So for this time in history, he has created room to exist so that his gospel of salvation can get out to everyone. Because there is coming a day where he will not be able to hold that back any longer, and he must impute sin upon them. He must. He has to. And so as long as we're alive, God has created this room through Jesus Christ in order to be merciful and gracious and kind towards us, offering us redemption and hope and salvation. And he's given us the privilege to take this word of reconciliation out to the world. And verse 20 says, Now then, because of that, we are ambassadors for Christ. Because of what God has done, now we represent him everywhere that we go. And this is why he says, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you, and Christ said, be ye reconciled to God. This is God's heart for the whole world. And he created that space to exist so that we can get the gospel of salvation out to anyone and everyone that's willing to hear. That goes completely against the Calvinist, completely and totally. And this is why I love the verse in 2 Peter 3, 9. It says that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some encounter slackness, but is long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, not all will, but God's heart is that all should. And so we dare not get in the way of that. 
And we'll be able to see in future weeks, there's a couple of clips I want to show you of people that have given themselves over to this Calvinistic theology and where it actually ends. Because God's heart is for the whole world. So, in conclusion, wrapping this up. From an intellectual and philosophical position of reasoning, the doctrine of total depravity has the appearance of biblical truth, but it is wholly incompatible with the Bible. The actual words of Scripture are abundantly clear. All men and women are depraved in their sin and sin nature, but that does not extend to their personal free will and impede the ability to humble themselves before God and receive the gospel of their salvation. If we are totally depraved to the point of being unable to respond in a positive manner to the gospel, then God is a manipulative liar playing a perverse game with our souls as he dictates over the affairs of this life. Total depravity maligns the character, heart, and word of God and therefore must be utterly rejected. And because of that, all the other ones we're going to go through just fall to pieces. Because as in the words of Dr. R.C. Sproul, and he's passed away since, and now he knows that he was wrong. If you don't believe in the doctrine of total depravity, then all the other five just completely fall to pieces. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word makes everything abundantly clear, abundantly clear, and we would do well to take heed to your word above any and all other voices. Your word is so clear. And I, I feel like sometimes in a lot of these circles and in a lot of these areas, we, we, uh, we can tend to be bullied and pushed around because when you go out on the internet today, it really is um, whoever's voice is the loudest, whoever has the most supporting material, they must be right. And that's not true. And so God, I pray that you would help us to discern as we have conversations with folks and, and really navigate through making disciples that any false doctrine, such as Calvinism or Reformed theology that um, really maligns your character, it's got to be thrown out. And really, we need to just put our hearts and our minds and, into your word and saturate ourselves with your truth. And it'll be very easy to be able to see truth from error. And so, God, we thank you for giving us a book. There are so many days where it's just easy to take it for granted, and I know that I've done that a lot, but you remind me all the time that it really is all that I need. And so, God, thank you for such a gift, and I pray that we would magnify you and magnify your word as we ought to. And God, I, I pray that you would help us to preserve the candle here in our local church and that we'd be able to not only preserve it here but multiply this in other places. You, are, you haven't come back yet, and there is work to do. There are people to be reached. There are disciples to be made. And no matter how bad the world gets, we need to stay focused. No matter how things unfold in our country or around the world, we need to honor you properly. And you've given us a mission, and our circumstances around us do not dictate us just falling short of that mission. We can't let that happen. We need to make sure that no matter what's going on, that we remain faithful to you. And we may have to change our methods here and there in order to accomplish your work, but you've given us a great work. And I pray that we would be faithful and that you would find us faithful. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.